And just before we come to the uh, preaching of God's word, let us stand for a moment's prayer. Our gracious and eternal Heavenly Father, we come now at this juncture in our meeting uh, to the opening of the sacred page of Scripture. And we pray, O God, as we confess unto Thee that we are not worthy for these things. Lord, we are uh, not worthy to preach the Word of God. We are not worthy to hear the Word of God. And so, Lord, we confess unto thee our need of thy help this hour. We pray, O God, that thou would give the help of the Spirit of God. We pray that we would know something of that preaching of the Word that is accompanied by the power of the Holy Ghost. We pray, O God, that we would know the hearing of the Word of God that is translated into the doing of the Word by the power of the Holy Ghost. So, Lord, we pray, shut us in now with thyself. Close out every thought that would take us away from thy word. Lord, forgive every word that is not of thyself. Lord, might our minds run in that channel that runs in accordance with Scripture. Come now, O Lord, we pray. And bless our time in this manner we ask of thee. For we pray it for the sake of thy Son and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. If you could turn back please to the book of Acts. And chapter 1 where we read a few moments ago. Acts chapter 1. And this morning I will be taking as my text uh, the verses 6 through 8 of this chapter. I want you just for a moment this morning to put yourself in the shoes of those who had gathered on the Mount of Olivet that Lord's Day morning uh, some 2,000 years ago. That moment in time, which we could say was the very pinnacle of the history of the world. Here we have perhaps the single most important time that had occurred from the creation itself. Here we have Jesus Christ standing in his body. In his resurrected body, standing with his people on that Mount of Olivet. Here we have our Saviour standing in his body, having completed his earthly work, having lived a life of perfect righteousness on the behalf of his people, having completed his grand purpose. Of the redemption of the elect of God. Having died on the cross. Having suffered the full force of the eternal wrath of God. Poured out upon his head. As our substitute. Having died for sins that were not his own. 
having suffered in his body all of the humiliation of his humanity, all of the cruel mocking of the world, the death of a criminal, having been buried in a borrowed tomb. But that same Jesus is the Jesus Christ who rose again in his true human body. Rose again triumphant over death, triumphant over the grave, triumphant over the forces of hell. And now he stands for the last time before the end of the world. For the last time during the lifetime of these disciples, he stands before them in that same human flesh, in that same body. For 40 days, Jesus Christ has been manifesting himself in the flesh to these followers. For 40 days he has been with them, bodily with them. This is the grand pinnacle of history. But we know, you and I gathered here today know that this was not all that happened that day. In just a few moments from where we stand putting ourselves into this history, in just a few moments time, that same body will rise, physically rise into glory, will return to be with the Father from where he came. That same body will no longer walk upon the earth. Not until he comes again. But that is not where the story ends. This is not the victory of the Messiah. This is a high point in history, but it is only the midpoint of history. This is not the end. But so it is, as we stand with these disciples in that moment of time before the ascension of Jesus Christ, something momentous is about to happen. But that something momentous is not merely, if I can use those terms, the ascension of Christ. Christ's earthly ministry is about to end. But the work of Christ's gospel kingdom is not about to end. Christ's kingdom work will continue. But just as Christ's earthly work belonged to him, so that continuing work of the gospel also belongs to him. Our title then as we consider this passage this morning, is the work of the gospel belongs to God. The first thing I want you to notice from verse 6 is that the promise is of God. Verse 6 reads, when, therefore, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom? To Israel. Here we have the disciples, and they have assembled in expectation of God's promise. When they therefore came together. Now, throughout the entire earthly ministry of Christ, we find the disciples repeatedly mistaking Christ's intentions. Time after time after time, 
we find that not only the Jews, but also Christ's own disciples, even the twelve disciples who went with him everywhere, we find them mistaking his intentions. We find them time after time asking, is, it, is this the time when the Messiah will restore again the Davidic throne in this Jerusalem? Is this the time the earthly kingdom will be restored to Israel? Time after time we find them uh, mistaking Christ's intent, uh, seeing him as an earthly Messiah and not a heavenly Messiah, expecting him to quash the Romans and liberate the Jews. In the very day of the resurrection itself, uh, we found much stir amongst the community of the disciples. What can this mean? What can this resurrection mean? And at the same time, we meet with two of those disciples making their way to Emmaus. And Christ appears to them on the way, and they clearly expected an earthly kingdom. In Luke 24, 21, we read, They said to Christ, who they didn't know was Christ at the time, but we trusted that it had been he, it would have been Jesus Christ, which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, Today is the third day since these things were done. They expected an earthly kingdom. But when we come to Acts chapter 1, we might well be tempted with that history behind us to think that when the disciples say, Wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom again to Israel? That they've done it again. We might be saying, Surely by now they must have learned that the kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. Well, there's two details in our passage that suggest to me that they have indeed learned that lesson when they ask this question. Firstly, we're told in verse 3 that Jesus has been spending 40 days in person speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. For 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus Christ has been spending those days full-time teaching the disciples about his heavenly kingdom. This was plain teaching. The time for the parables is now past. The time for questioning uh, the, the, uh, the intent of the disciples and the faithfulness of the disciples has passed. The time of trial has passed. And now they are being taught plainly and clearly what this kingdom is all about. And this question that we meet with here uh, in verse 6 uh, the verse commences when they therefore, as a result of all that teaching, they now ask this question. It was clearly related to that teaching. But also, and we'll see in a few moments more of this, but when Jesus answers the question, he does not rebuke them. He doesn't rebuke the disciples for asking. We get no sense from Jesus' response that the disciples had got it wrong again. So I would suggest that the disciples here were not now expecting an earthly kingdom, but rather they were expecting the eternal kingdom of God. Now they've got a hold of this gospel kingdom. Now they know what they're looking for. There's no unbelief in this question. Now they rather are coming to Jesus Christ with this question and they are anticipating the promise that Christ has given. They are assembling, expecting God's promise to come to pass. That promise, as it is put in verse 4, the promise of the Father, that's what they've been taught of Christ, by Christ of for these last few days, and that's what they now assemble in expectation of. But they ask in faith in that promise also. 
It says, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou restore again the kingdom to Israel? They believed. The disciples believed that the kingdom would be restored. There was no question in their minds. They were exercising faith in God's promise. This restoration that they speak of. Will the kingdom be restored? This was the restoration that Jesus spoke to them about in Matthew 17 and also in Mark 9 when he spoke of the coming of Elias. In Mark 9 verse 12, that coming restoration is linked directly with the suffering of Christ which the disciples have now just witnessed. And they answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. So you see, not only was this restoration promised, but an accompanying outpouring of the Holy Spirit was also promised. And Christ refers to that here in verse 5. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So these words, the baptizing of the Holy Ghost, they refer to the day of Pentecost. Uh, we read of it in the next chapter of Acts. Uh, the prophecy of Joel that we read in Joel chapter 2 uh, in uh, our Old Testament reading uh, prophesied of that very day and of these days, these kingdom, these gospel days. Uh, this is what was expected this is the the promise that had been made and the promise now that the disciples have got a hold of in faith and we see then before this great work of the gospel commences that the disciples are brought to see the promise of god concerning the significance of the kingdom and the promised power of the spirit but they also anticipated the fulfillment of the promise they ask will the kingdom uh, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom uh, to Israel? At this time, with this faith, this zeal of the disciples, this is commendable. This is not rash zeal. This is not the disciples pushing ahead of God's will. This is commendable. Rather, what we see in the way in which they ask this question and the earnestness and the urgency with which they ask, we see that they are demonstrating complete trust in the promise of God. Complete dependence upon him. They believe it. That's why they're asking, is it going to be now? They believe it as certainly as if it is now already. They know it for sure. In their zeal, they are longing for the promise to come now. They are earnestly desiring it to be now. This is what we're seeing in this question. There's no misunderstanding here. It's not that they, they expected uh, like that the kingdom of heaven was to come. Uh, that's, not, that's not what we see, some misunderstanding on the part of the disciples who had been instructed for 40 days by the perfect and fallible teacher himself. Things that are not written down for us. Did you ever wonder... How did the disciples get from forsaking him and fleeing in the garden? From the bewilderment of those resurrection days going, or the days before the resurrection, wondering how is this crucified saviour, the saviour of the Old Testament, how did they get from that to the things that we read in the epistles? The plain gospel written for us in the epistles. Yes, it's inspired of God, but they were instructed for 40 days by Christ. 
So there's no misunderstanding here. They knew what they were asking for. And they longed for it to be now. It's the same attitude we read of in John. Or from John in Revelation 22. At the end of the New Testament canon. Where we read, even so come Lord Jesus. There writes a man who more than possibly any other man knew what the gospel age was to look like. He knew that it wasn't going to come this very instant in time. But he prays, even so come Lord Jesus. As if he's saying, oh this kingdom, we, we long for this kingdom. But we know it's not going to be today. We know it's not even going to be tomorrow. But even so come, let it be now. That's the earnestness we see here. You know, when we think of all the promises that God has given in his word, they are equally applicable to us today. The very same promises given to these disciples of the kingdom that would come, they apply equally to us today who are living in the same now that the disciples were living in. You know, when you're standing with them in the Mount of Olivet in your mind, we're standing in the same days as they were standing in. Yes, our culture is vastly different. Yes, many years have passed, but this is the day of the gospel kingdom. This is the day that was established on that, at that moment in time. This is the same kingdom we pray for. It's the same now we long for. We are promised not only that the kingdom will be restored, we are promised that. You and I today are promised this kingdom will come. The kingdom will be restored. We are promised the guaranteed success of that gospel kingdom. As it spreads through the world, we are promised the guaranteed success of that spread. But my friend, this morning, do you believe it? Do you anticipate it? How the disciples were anticipating it here. Do you long for it? Do you pray? Let it be now. Let the kingdom come now. Ah, but you say, our days are hard days. This is not, we're not talking about days now when Christ is standing amongst us. Our days, there's coldness, there's deadness, there's dearth. We don't have thousands of people flocking into the churches. The whole society is against us. They hate us. They treat us like the offscurring. Our government is against us. Oh, it's not like the days of the disciples. But yet, we read in Acts chapter 1, in the days of the disciples, there were only 120 of them in the whole world. We could accommodate them here. The whole world. And those Christians were being persecuted. And they were being killed. The whole world was against them. Their government was against them. They may, they may have tolerated them only because they thought they were irrelevant. Don't be thinking our days are harder than the days of the disciples. But lay hold on the same promises that applied in those days. Lay hold on the promises of God for his gospel work with all of your being and grasp those promises by faith and expect the success of the kingdom and pray, O oh Lord, let it be now. So we see that the promises of God. Secondly, in verse 7, we see that the power is of God. 
We read there, and he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Now this is the answer that Christ gives to the question. As I say, there is no rebuke here, but there is a caution from Christ. It is not for you to know. There is a boundary that Christ is setting around his, his infinite wisdom. I have spent 40 days teaching you about the kingdom, but this piece of information is not for you to know. There's a warning, a caution. It didn't belong to the disciples to know because it only belongs to God. The disciples now more fully understand what this kingdom is. They understand it's an eternal kingdom. And so we don't rebuke the disciples like Christ did not rebuke the disciples for asking when. It's a natural question. When will it be? But Christ's answer is simply this. That is not for you to know. But in that caution, there's also a confirmation from Christ. He talks about the times or the seasons. What a glorious encouragement. He says it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. But in so saying, he is saying this, there will be a time. This kingdom will be restored. It's as certain as that. In effect, in giving this word of caution, Christ is confirming that there is coming a time in the which the kingdom will not only be established on the earth and extended through the, uh, the whole reach of the, of the Gentiles, with the bringing in of the Jews, but there is coming a day in which this kingdom will be ultimately triumphant. And that time is in the power of the, of the Father. It is not for the disciples to know, but the fact of it itself. Take encouragement from that. Because this is the key message that Christ gets across to the disciples in this answer. There is certainty in God's power. It says which the Father hath put in his own power. He describes these times and these seasons as having been put by the Father in his own power. It's an interesting phrase. The word power is used again in verse 8. But it's a different word that is translated power there. Whenever we read of this word power belonging to the Father, it doesn't mean his ability or his strength. Or rather, I should say, it doesn't merely mean that. But it means his authority. Whenever the same word is used of the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it refers to the domain. This is the domain of the Father. It's in his, within his realm of authority. It is up to him. It belongs to him. The times and the seasons belong to God. It's his kingdom. And only he has that power within that domain. Unlike other types of power that belong to God, this power has not been delegated to his church. We got a hint of that whenever Christ talked about uh, himself, the Son, not knowing the times that they belong only to the Father. Then Christ stood in our place as our mediator on earth. Even, even the times weren't to be revealed to him in his earthly ministry. It hasn't been delegated to the church. It's held as the preserve of the Father. It's a heavenly knowledge that is only for God in heaven. But the desire that the disciples had is wholesome. It was good that they were enthusiastic about the kingdom of Christ that they had been taught about. 
But the design of that kingdom and the timing of it all, that belongs to God alone. And we shouldn't miss in this, in this phrase, have put in his own power. Uh, there is also the language that uh, a reference to having always been in the Father's power. It's not something that he has reacted to in some way. And there's a reference in that to God's eternal counsel. From before the world began, these times and these seasons have been set down in the eternal counsel of God. It has always belonged to him. It has always been the day that is coming. It has been determined from eternity. Who will be in this kingdom? When the Redeemer would be sent to accomplish redemption. All of the circumstances of that redemption being applied to individual citizens of the kingdom. Even the final consummation of the kingdom itself. All of it has been decreed from eternity. By the power. By the authority of the Father. I see in a, a reminder here in this, in, this, uh, in this verse to us not to overstep, not to go beyond the boundaries that God has given. Eschatology, the doctrine of the end things is a very interesting subject, but it has sucked many a believer into an endless cycle of going round and round and trying to compute things and it's a dangerous subject. And we have a caution here. Not to disregard it. It's a revealed doctrine. But to be careful. Don't go beyond the bounds that God has set. Looking around. In our day and age. It is easy for us to fall into the trap. Of longing for things to be different. Longing for brighter days. For there to be more life in the church. More conversions. These zealous desires are not sinful desires. These are commendable things. But there's a danger in this also, that we lose sight that the power is of God. It is all of God. It belongs to him. We ought not to shake our fist at God that there isn't enough conversion. Be careful of that. God's power is not measured by outward displays that we can see. What we need to get firmly planted in our hearts and in our minds is that the work of the kingdom of the gospel belongs to God and he is working. He's working beyond our ken. He's working in ways that we cannot see or understand. It's a challenge to our hearts. Do we long for things to be better? I would say every believer will say, yes, of course we do. But why do we long for things to be better? Is it for God's glory that we long? Or is it for our own? For our church? For our denomination? Do we long to be more influential? Do we long to have greater liberty in society to exercise our Christianity? Do we grow tired of being the outcasts? Or is it truly for God's glory that we yearn? For his kingdom to come? Because if that's what we long for, then we will trust him. And we'll trust his timing and his methods. And we'll trust his revealed word as to how we go about it as his church. He is being glorified. Even in dark days. Even in days such, as which we, such in which we live. Because God's power is not diminished by the, by the scorn of the world. So the promise of the kingdom is of God. The power of that kingdom is of God. But also, notice in the third place from verse 8, 
that the plan is of God. Verse 8 reads, But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Although the times and the seasons are in the power of God alone, yet in his infinite mercy, he has so decided to reveal much of his plan of the plan of his kingdom to us as his church. It's not left as a complete mystery to us as to how this kingdom work will go forward and God could have left it as a mystery to us. There's no imperative on the part of God, there's no deserving on our part for this, for this plan to be revealed. But yet, rather than having it left as a mystery, like the day, like the times and the seasons. He could have said the times and the seasons and the methods are in God's power. But unlike the times and the seasons, here we have the plan laid out in detail. What will this gospel kingdom age look like on earth? Well, here is what we are told it will look like. Not only for the benefit of the disciples on Mount Olivet that day. These are the inspired words of scripture for the benefit of the church in all ages, for the benefit of you here today. So what's the plan? Well, the first thing is the endowment of power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Not like the power of God that we've just been considering. A different word in the original. Here we are thinking of the capabilities. Here we are thinking of the uh, the, the ability and the, uh, the, what's needful for us to do stuff. That's what's in view now. That energizing power. That delegated power from God that comes through the Holy Spirit. And they're about to receive this power. And it won't be like anything they have experienced before. But it will be like the experience of every child of God in the days that follow. This is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And the fulfillment of those prophecies of Joel. And it's the fulfillment of the promises of God. We, we see from what, in, what follows and how it's described that it's both personal to every individual believer and it's indwelling. It's not some outward power, but it fills them. This is the first stage of the plan. Indeed, these disciples were essentially instructed to do nothing else until that power was to be given. They should not depart, verse 4 reads, they should not depart from Jerusalem but wait for the promise of the Father. We see from their earnestness earlier how difficult it must have been for the disciples to wait. Now is their mantra, but yet wait is the word that their Saviour gives them. It just further underscores for us that this work is the work of God. More specifically here, we see it's the work of the Holy Spirit. There can be no kingdom work without the power of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, we see that there was an exhortation to preach. The verse continues, And ye shall be witnesses unto me. In the plan of God, he has appointed witnesses to preach the gospel. That is the instrument that God, in his sovereign wisdom, has chosen. 
might not have been the instrument that we would have chosen. Maybe we would have been signs and wonders people. Maybe we would have had military might. But this is the instrument that God has chosen. The exact nature of that witness. Luke records for us in the end of his gospel account in Luke 24. In verse 46 to 48 of Luke 24. It reads, and Jesus said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. This witness bearing that the disciples were to do, it was not only bearing witnesses, eyewitnesses. We know from John's Gospel and from the epistles of John that that was one of the key roles that the apostles had was they were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ, of his life, his death and his resurrection and ascension. They saw it with their own eyes. John talks about having handled it and he uses such physical language. Yes, they were to bear witness of the physical, of the physical experience of the earthly Christ. But it goes beyond that. This is the message of the gospel that they were being exhorted to preach. Not the gospel of a physical Christ, but the gospel of all the work and person of the divine Son of God become man. The substitute who stood in our place. The sin-bearing substitute who died for the sins of his people. Who lived a life that his people could never have lived. This witness-bearing is not only eyewitness, but of his suffering, his resurrection, the message of the gospel, the remission of sins. That's how Christ describes it. Yes, it's a witness to facts, but it will be a witness to truth, an unchanging truth. There's a sense in which this gospel work is contrasted with the normal ideas we might hold and that the disciples might have held before these 40 days of a triumphant kingdom. Perhaps we don't feel uh, today that we're living in a triumphant kingdom, yet we are. These are not the conquering methods uh, that we might have expected. But this is the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's the weapon of our warfare. It's more than simply telling people what they had seen. This is Holy Spirit, power endured, endured preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the remission of sins, the salvation that comes through him. This is the beginning of the gospel work. But look what follows in the next verse. In verse 9, finally we have the extent, or verse 8, sorry, we, we have the extent of the plan. The verse ends both in Jerusalem and in all Judea. And in Samaria, and on to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is something remarkable. One thing that is different, perhaps, between the disciples and ourselves is their Jewishness. Having been reared, you might say, on a diet of exclusive Jewishness, what Christ now says to them, it's momentous. It's quite staggering. But yet, 
It's something that was laid down plainly in the scriptures of the Jews. And the promise to Abraham was the covenant as it was revealed to Abraham, not a covenant to all nations. Was it not that he would be the father of many nations? <coughs> yes, the Jewish nation, but all nations of the earth. And here we have Christ unfolding to these Jewish disciples the plan of the gospel kingdom in a geographical hierarchy that expands from Jerusalem and expands throughout the whole globe. It expands to places the disciples had not even any knowledge that they yet existed. He begins with Jerusalem. The chosen site of the old administration of the covenant religion. He expands it to the wider land of the Jews. To all Judea. From there we go out to the hated neighbours. The Samaritans. And if that wasn't scandalous enough. He ends on to the uttermost part of the earth. The word on to. Unto is a word that limits. He's saying there's a limit to this kingdom. There's a point at which it goes no further. He's not limiting in time. He's not saying unto until the time runs out. You may have heard preaching like that. You may have heard, heard warnings of time running out. There is no time running out with God. He's set the hour. The times and the seasons belong to him. But the limit that this word onto puts on it is a limit in extent. The gospel cannot go beyond this point. That's what Jesus Christ is saying. What is the limit? He qualifies the limit as being the uttermost part of the earth. That word uttermost, it means the lowest. It means the position of least honour. If Jerusalem is the highest, if Jerusalem is the place of the centre of the covenant, if you like, down through all the history of the Jewish people and the nation up until this moment in time, if Jerusalem is the chosen site at which the redemption of man would occur, the uttermost part of the earth is the opposite of that. The least honoured place. The place that is so far from the mind of these kingdom Jews, that they can't even imagine how low that must be, how dishonourable that must be, how savage must be those people. You see, Christ is saying the kingdom will go no further than the lowest it can go. You see what he's saying then? This is the limits of the kingdom. The kingdom is without limits. As high as Jerusalem, and as low as the lowest tribe, as far as the uttermost ends of the earth, Christ's kingdom knows no limits. His people will be gathered from every nation. Oh, friends, this morning, this kingdom in Acts chapter 1, that the disciples were instructed on by our master himself, this kingdom which was written down for us by those same apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. This kingdom has not changed. There is only one kingdom. 
one kingdom of God. It has existed from eternity. It is under the superintendence of God himself. We today are living in that kingdom. We are conducting that kingdom work today. We are gathered in the furtherance of that kingdom work today. We have the same promises. That kingdom will come. Every event in the life of the church, every event in the life of every congregation, everything that happens in this congregation here, all of the good days, all of the dark providences, all of the days of plenty, the days of famine, all of the days that leave us wondering what God is doing, it has all been determined in God's eternal wisdom. And so what I leave with you today is this, be encouraged, be roused, child of God, be up and roused by this message, to think that God has got a plan for you here today, he has got a plan for this congregation in West Hill, in Inverness today, he has a plan in your home, He has a plan wherever you go. There is a work to be done. There is a work to be done in the extending of this kingdom and the bringing in of the kingdom of God. But this work, remember it, it needs the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not your work. God's work must have the power of the Spirit. But the encouragement to you is this. God's work will have that power. God's kingdom will come. And we as his people will have the endowment of the power of his Holy Spirit. There's no work without the Spirit. But equally with the Spirit, we cannot but work. We must work. We will be witnesses. We will attest to the truth of the gospel please stand for prayer our gracious and eternal heavenly father we thank thee for thy word we thank thee O God that we have these precious promises even unto us we thank thee that this is the work of God that we can do nothing without thee Lord, we cannot take a step. Lord, though we may crave things to be different, though we may, Lord, have a longing for the time to be now, yet, Lord, we consecrate those longings to Thee. We pray, O God, that Thou would give the promised Holy Ghost, that Thou, O God, would fill us every one with the power of Thy Spirit, and that we would be instruments in Thy hand, in the extending of thy kingdom. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, we pray. For these things we ask in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Turn for our final singing this morning to Psalm number 22. Psalm 22, we're going to be singing from verse 27 of this psalm to the end, verse 31.
Psalm 22, uh, verse 27. All ends of the earth remember shall, and turn the Lord unto. All kindreds of the nations to him shall homage do. Because the kingdom to the Lord doth appertain as his. Likewise among the nations, the governor he is. Psalm 22, I will sing from verse 27 to the end of the psalm. And as we finish singing the psalm, could I ask the Reverend MacDonald please to come and pronounce the benediction. fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest on and abide with you all now and forevermore.
Amen. Amen. Amen.